Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. The Jewish rabbi, Harold Kushner, has written a book, Who Needs God? And in it he quotes from a letter that was written to Ann Landers and signed, Forever Guilty. Uh, This lady says, six years ago on New Year's Eve, my husband John and I went to a party at the home of friends. We were in the mood to celebrate. After five years of scrimping and saving, we had bought a modest home and repaid in full our college loans. Uh, John had one more semester of law school and excellent job prospects. So we were really in the mood to celebrate. John and I are not drinkers, but... The night, that night, there was a lot of champagne, and we had several glasses. Everyone was having a wonderful time. The party didn't break up until dawn. Actually, saying good night to the host was the last thing either of us remembers until the accident. God forgive us, we ended the life of a 13-year-old boy who was delivering bakery goods on his bicycle. Witnesses say that he was dragged more than 200 feet. The doctors did everything they could to save him, but his injuries were too extensive. He died after four days. In those few moments when we got the news, the entire world changed. Never again would it be the same. That little boy who was the light of his parents' life will never grow up, fall in love, be a source of pride to his family and a contributing member of society. We called on the family, but they refused to see us. Uh, We, the day of the funeral, we sent roses and sat in the back row of the church. When we came home, we found the rose petals and broken stems scattered over our front steps. My husband never finished law school. Uh, He uh, had difficulty holding a job. He couldn't concentrate. Intensive therapy and support from family and some friends kept us going. The rabbi raises a question. Must they be forever guilty? Well, what does Scripture say about that? I believe that uh, this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, relates directly to that. Uh, This is one of the most amazing prophecies in Scripture, if not the most amazing prophecy in Scripture. When I became a Christian, I was already in seminary, and I was in a seminary that was in the process of going theologically liberal. And I would go in one class, and the professor was tearing the Bible apart, undermining the authority of it. I'd go in another class, and the professor was trying to try to put it back together for me. Was the Bible true? Is it the Word of God? I have an engineering background, and... As I began to wrestle with that question, the matter of prophecy, predictive, predictive prophecy, began to grip me. As I began to realize how much prophecy there was in Scripture, how unique that is. There's nothing else like that in the world. Look at any other religion in the world. Buddhism, Mohammedism, you name it. Uh, no other holy book has that, or even claims that. See, if you're going to tell the future in detail, way ahead of time, 
you better be in control of it. Only God can do that. And uh, yet, he does it repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly in Scripture. And with an engineering background, as I began to realize the specific nature, the hundreds of years ahead, the details, the uniqueness, that gave me a solid foundation for my confidence in the full inspiration of Scripture. Let's look at this particular prophecy. In uh, Isaiah, this section of, of Isaiah deals with what are called the servant songs of Isaiah, the servant prophecies about God's servant. Uh, really, the background of this particular prophecy starts in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. In verse 13, it says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently and shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Here's this servant of the Lord who will be very wise and very exalted. In verse 14, as many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Although so exalted, he'll suffer terribly. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Sprinkling in the Old Testament was the way you cleansed things. You sprinkled it with the blood and so on. And uh, he cleanses people from many nations by his suffering. For that, uh, in verse 15, he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see. And that which they had not heard shall they consider. An amazing thing will happen. Astounding. But men won't believe when they're told. In chapter 53, verse 1, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The paucity of true believers. When Jesus came, the great majority of the people didn't believe in him. And so it is this day. And now... The whole course of the servant's life is unfolded from his origin on down as we move along in this passage written by Isaiah some 700 plus B.C. In uh, verse 2, For he, the servant, shall grow up before him, God, as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground, his obscure origin just like a little twig growing up. When we shall see him, uh, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He hath no form nor comeliness. I don't think this is a reference to Jesus' physical appearance, but to his general humiliation as he comes. He doesn't come uh, in kingly robes with pomp and... Uh, marching bands, very humble, obscure origin, the lack of attraction to himself, the manifestation of the servant, and then the rejection by men, verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Socrates, some 500 B.C., used to discuss with other philosophers what would happen if a 
truly perfect man were born. And they said, well, we would all fall at his feet and worship him. He said, no, I believe we would kill him. His rejection by men. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. His affliction, uh, his acquaintance with grief, uh, and modern translations have sickness there instead of grief. Sickness is often used by Isaiah uh, to picture sin. He starts off his book in chapter 1 describing the nation as He says, the whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint because of their sin, describing the the nation in medical terms there. Uh, He won't be a sinner, but he will be acquainted with it, and we'll find out why as we move along. The devaluation by men, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. We discounted him. We... He is despised, and we esteemed him not. The substitution of the servant, verse 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. His identification with us is our griefs or our sins that he carries, our sicknesses, our sin. It's placed on him. Men would estimate that he was suffering from his own, for his own sin. We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, for his own sin. That would be the common view. But that's not the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter, says Isaiah, in verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, the, the punishment that would bring about our peace, our reconciliation with God, was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Men estimated that he was being punished for his own sin. The truth of the matter, says Isaiah, he was bearing our guilt as our substitute. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. The substitution. The reconciliation that he accomplishes as the enmity is removed. Our peace with God is established for all who do truly believe in him. Uh, The renovation, it says, by whose stripes we are healed. We raised the question earlier. Must forever guilty remain forever guilty? And the answer is no. By his stripes, we are healed. There is healing. By his stripes, when we believe in him, when we believe his claim to be the Son of God who fulfilled these prophecies, who died in our stead, and we surrender our will to him as our master, then we are healed by his stripes. We're forgiven. Our guilt is removed. We're justified in the sight of God. The parents of the boy may not forgive us, but God removes our guilt. And he changes our nature, the renovation of nature. 
we're healed in that sense too. So that we have a new nature. Now, we still have a sinful nature. But we have God's Spirit living within. And we can cope with something we otherwise could not cope with. We can cope with that rejection by those parents. Uh, We can cope and face life. Because He heals. He gives power. That's the answer. That's a great answer. It's an adequate answer. He compares the idea of substitution with a sheep in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. This coming servant of his. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Our life prior to becoming Christians, my life prior to becoming a Christian, was characterized by turning to my own way. I will live my life my way. But God takes that rebellion and guilt and lays it on his son. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. One of the ceremonies in the Old Testament was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when the high priest would take a a sheep and he would uh, put his hand on the head of this animal and he would confess the people's sin, symbolically transferring their guilt to this innocent third party. And then the lamb's blood was slain, was taken, and, and he was slain and was taken into the innermost part of the sanctuary in the presence of God and sprinkled on the mercy seat. The blood of this innocent third party being shed for their guilt. And then he would do the same thing and confess their sin over another animal, a goat. And uh, this scapegoat was led away, not killed, led away into the wilderness. The idea that through this transference of guilt and the shedding of blood, Their guilt is removed and taken away. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. By his stripes we are healed. Peter quotes this over in 1 Peter. He says, Who bear our sin in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. Notice that we now can live differently because of this. And he died that we could live differently. But what a cost. What a cost. The great hymn, the 99, talks about the sheep had gone astray and the shepherd went after him. It has a verse in there that's always spoken to my heart. And none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed. Or how dark was the night that the Lord went through ere he found the sheep that was lost. We have the execution of the servant. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And like a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. The submission to oppression. Think of Jesus standing before Pilate, not defending himself, 
saying, Don't you know that I could call twelve legions of angels and so on? He says that earlier in the garden. And he says to Pilate uh, that he would have no power over me except it were given you from above. Submitting to oppression, his imprisonment and trial. In verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment or trial. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. Modern translation says, And among his generation, or contemporaries, who takes thought that he was cut off? In other words, the, the fact of a, a generation, that generation of people didn't attach any great significance at that time. Who takes thought? You probably see this time of year as you go by various churches across, and there'll be a sign on the cross that says something like this. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by, is it nothing to you that Jesus should die? And to his generation, basically, it was nothing. His execution. His, the reason for this, verse uh, 8, for the transgression of my people, says God, was he stricken. His companions in death, in verse 9, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. When Jesus died, two thieves died with him, one on either side. And he was buried in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. He's innocent. In verse 9, he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Did the Lord enjoy doing this to Jesus? Spurgeon talks about that, and he says, Think about when Abraham offered Isaac. God had told Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. And the old man goes to the mountain God has shown him, and... Uh, he has his son with him, and his son is carrying the wood, and they have the fire. And the boy looks at his dad uh, as they build an altar. And he says, Father, here's the wood and here's the fire, but where's the lamb? And after a little while, he says, Son, you're the lamb. What, Daddy? You're the lamb. God has told me to offer you. Abraham is an old man. Isaac could have resisted. Isaac could have run away. But apparently Isaac doesn't resist. He gets on the altar. And the old man takes a knife, not a rubber knife, and raises it to plunge it into his son's heart. How does the old man feel? Does he enjoy doing this, or is his heart crushed? Spurgeon says, that's, that's a picture of how God felt when he offered his son. And God stopped Abraham as Abraham's arm started down. God said, no, don't do it. But God 
did do it to his son. And he took that knife and plunged it right into his son's heart. How did he feel? Did he enjoy it? It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It didn't please him to put his son through that, but he did it because it was his pleasure to save us. Why couldn't he just forgive us? Spurgeon says, God longed to save, but if such a word be allowed, justice tied his hands. I must be just, said God. That is the necessity of my nature. But then my heart desires to forgive, to pass by man's transgression, to pardon them. How can it be done? Wisdom stepped in and said, It shall be done thus. And love agreed. Christ Jesus, the Son of God, shall stand in man's place. And he shall be offered on maybe the same mountain. Mount Calvary, a mountain in the land of Moriah. Maybe the same one Abraham was going to offer Isaac on. He should be offered on Mount Calvary instead of man. Notice it said, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Thou hast put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul a sin offering, an asham, A-S-H-A-M, the Hebrew word, a sin offering. There's the ground of God's forgiveness. God must be just when he forgives, and he gave his son so that he could be just when he justifies us. The Jewish rabbi, Kushner, says, If that couple came to me forever guilty, what would I say to them? Uh, well, he says, In ancient Israel you had a sin offering that people could bring when they had sinned. And uh, so, I would say to them, or the man who brought the sin offering could say to himself, sometimes, uh, I admit it, I am weak and selfish, but look, sometimes I can be strong and generous too. I can bring an offering. He's missed the whole concept. That offering wasn't saying, yes, you can be generous. That offering was saying, there's no hope for you except I lay your guilt on my son. That's the only way I can forgive. You can't make up for this. You can't bring an offering and make up. The offering pictures my son. He missed it. He says that you can go out and do good things, he would tell them. You can work at public service and spend a third of your time uh, maybe being a lawyer for the poor and the handicapped, and make up for this. And finally, I would tell them to turn to God and to ask whether God sees them as forever guilty or whether he sees their good, clean, caring side as clearly as he sees their weak, careless one. Does God see my good, clean, caring side, and that's why he forgives me? No. God knows I'm rotten through and through. Even my wife knows that. But God gave His Son and laid all my rottenness on Him and is willing to remove my guilt forever by placing it on His Son who paid it in full. 
and God will change me if I'll respond to that, put my trust in Him and surrender my will to Him. There was a famous minister of a previous generation by the name of Dr. Clow. On occasion, Dr. Clow was preaching in a seacoast town in Scotland, and as a guest, he stayed the night with an old sea captain. He was a member of the church, and the sea captain said, Before we go to bed, doctor, would you read from the prayer book? And gives him the Church of England prayer book. And as the doctor opened, he saw that the prayers in there, which would end in terms of asking forgiveness for us, for Jesus' sake, that for Jesus' sake was struck out with red ink in every one of those prayers. And he asked the old sea captain, he said, I don't understand why you struck that out. And he said, well, uh, I don't think we have to plead with God for forgiveness. As I understand it, I've done wrong. I go, I acknowledge it, and I try to do different, and God forgives me. Why do I have to bring Jesus in? Dr. Clow explained about one who came and our guilt was laid on him. Now God can be just when he forgives us as a gift through faith in his son. And the old captain listened and he got there. He said, your gospel is a better gospel than mine. Amen. This gospel is wonderful for sinners. Any sinners here? Man, give me this gospel. I'll live with this one and die with this one and go face a holy God with this one without any fear. Notice, following his execution, something amazing happens. Verse 10, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He, the servant, shall see his seed... He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He sees his seed after death. He sees uh, those who are redeemed. E.J. Young, in his commentary, says, If he were to remain dead, this would be impossible. Here the verb makes clear, Death will not hold the servant, but rather he will come to life and see his seed. He will prolong his days. Here's the resurrection brought before us. After death, he prolongs his days. And uh, the pleasure of the Lord, namely to redeem a host of fallen men, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He brings about this wonderful thing. And he's satisfied. Verse 11. He shall see of the travail of his soul. He will see what he's accomplished through this suffering and shall be satisfied. And he will justify many through or by his knowledge or by knowledge of him shall my righteous servant justify legally clear many for he shall bear their iniquities. And then his exaltation, his resurrection and then his ascending. And uh, verse 12, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He comes back a conqueror, and he shares the spoil with his people, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Tremendous. Think of that. 
What an amazing prophecy. 700 years before, Isaiah lays out the whole course of Jesus' life from his obscure origin, born in a carpenter's home and so on, his obscure origin to his rejection by men, uh, to his substitution as he bears our sins, to his execution as he's cut off out of the land of the living, to his resurrection as he prolongs his days, to his ascension and session at the right hand of God as he conquers and divides the spoil with the strong. What an amazing prophecy. Of whom speaketh the prophet this? That was the question that Philip was asked. Philip, the evangelist. God tells him to go out into the desert. And as he does, he sees a chariot coming along with the treasure of Ethiopia sitting in the chariot reading Isaiah out loud. And the portion he read was right here in Isaiah 53. Philip joins himself and runs alongside and says, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I except someone should guide me? And he gets in the chariot and, and uh, he says, the, the eunuch says, Of whom speaketh the prophet this? Who's he talking about? And it says, Philip, beginning at this same scripture, preached unto him Jesus. Do you count that this is speaking of Jesus? If you're a Christian, what obligations you and I are under? Think of his suffering for us. Obligation to live for him. And all that he fulfilled might see the travail of his soul in me, and with his work continued be as I with my dear Savior. What obligations to live for him. What obligations to tell others. You see, men around us are forever guilty. Forever guilty. Without a knowledge of God's way of forgiving. How widespread is that knowledge? In our own country, in the Bible Belt. I'll tell you, it's not too widespread. You don't have to ask many people the question. Suppose you stood before God and he says, why should I accept you? To understand that the wides, the knowledge of how God forgives is not very widespread here, not to mention around the world. Our obligation to evangelize, to tell the news of how forever guilty can be forever pardoned. Man, can be healed. If you're here and you're not a Christian, but you believe that this was speaking of Jesus, that he's the one who took your guilt in this fashion, underwent that rejection, uh, that laying of our guilt upon him voluntarily, that God so loved us, he sent his son. Love found a way. You believe that, but you're not a Christian. That's the way I was for years. What are you going to do about it today? Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, if you are a Christian, once again, let's see here, the tremendous obligation to live for Him, to be grateful, to thank Him, to let our daily life be a thank you. 
and to tell our fellow man, is there someone that you know who is forever guilty? They don't know how God forgives, and thus they're forever guilty, that you need to go to, that you need to invite to church, that you need to share this with. If you're here and you're in the category of guilty, your guilt's not removed. But you see how God forgives. Are you prepared to become a servant of the Lord's servant? To surrender to a master and to trust a Savior who did this for you? If so, you can make that commitment now. Pray in your heart like this. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the servant of the Lord. For coming and voluntarily undergoing this for me. Lord, I become your servant. I surrender to you. I purpose to obey you. And I trust you to heal me with your stripes. Come live in me and change me and remove my guilt forever. Amen.